welcome to the very latest edition of the Selby is Godcast, of course, presented by The Athletic Cleveland. I am TJ Zuppi. But instead of being joined this week by Zach Meisel, who is out of the country on vacation right now, soaking in sun rays and me being completely jealous of it as he's sending out all of his Instagram photos. You know what? That's just totally uncalled for. But you know what? He earned it. He had a really rough year as he's laid out throughout the podcast, you know, all the travel problems and all the things that he's done to earn this vacation. I'll let him have it. And this week I'm, I'm pleased because I feel like even though it's a pinch hitter, I feel like I'm sending up uh, like a, what, five, six win player. I think that's pretty accurate. Jordan Bastion of MLB.com. Would, would you be okay with five or six wins? That, that being kind of your career norm. Man, that's a, that's a high bar to set here. Uh, but yeah, I, I take that as a huge compliment and I agree. I don't need to be seeing photos of Zach's feet in the sand in the Bahamas, uh, while you and I are trying to find quiet places in our house to do a podcast because we have kids running around, uh, you know, so keep your feet off Instagram, Zach. That's my advice going forward. Well, it's not as bad. I mean, it's one thing to show me the sand and the beach and the sun. I really, really any photo that shows his toes i don't yeah need it. We i don't, need, I don't that. need that yeah we didn't I, need that just just leave that out for, right a good good rule of thumb <laughs> i don't want to see your feet in any way shape or form i'm sure they're fine i'm sure they're clean i just i have no desire and recovered from injury so that's good we that, he yeah, didn't have a walking boot in the sand so that was good that's true i mean that's one way he spent his off season and that's one of the things we talk about on this podcast every week you know what we're up to not baseball related because uh, you know, it's kind of slim pickings right now outside of a few rumors here and there. So, you know, I, we, we're, we're aware of Zach's problems. We know of all the Netflix shows that we've been catching up on on, on this podcast. You and I, I, j- I just started I just started the bodyguard, by the way, the bot. Wait, the there's a show, the bodyguard. Yeah, it's from uh, it's from the UK. It's like, a yeah, it's a British sort of cop show series it's like all the rage over there it just dropped on netflix you should check it out is it is it a playoff of the whitney houston kevin costner movie <laughs> no i don't know i i actually have ne- there's people i've never seen that i've seen the the famous poster i've never seen the movie this yeah. is different well it's, it stars one of the guys from game of thrones another show you haven't seen okay great well now that we're all caught up there and you and I exchange constantly what we're watching and either you're catching up on a show that I have already watched and that I'm sending you subtle hints about what might happen uh, without actually revealing it. Or it's the other way around for, for me right now. It's House of Cards. So I, I keep sending you like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. And you're like, yeah, yeah, just wait for the <laughs> next thing. <laughs> or I really I, I'm, I'm always hesitant to tell you I really love this character because you're like eh, he's gonna die in like three episodes don't get too attached oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you know what that's how we spend our off season and you know what Zach earns his vacation we earn a little bit of downtime and the opportunity to watch Netflix we'll find out though if any of the the, the Indians fans favorite characters that, that being the players actually make it through the off season you know, Zach and I have talked about some of the rumors that are out there and I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, Jordan, because I think pretty much people have probably been beat over the head by it now. But just kind of what, what are your thoughts on some of the rumors that have been you know, linked to the Indians looking into interest in, in their pitching? It's not anything we haven't seen before, but it does seem like compared to years past, there are reasons why this might feel a little bit different. 
Yeah, for sure. And as a Selby's Godcast regular listener, you know, I know you guys have talked about this at length because it all, like you said, that's kind of all we have to, to chew on right now before any of these moves actually come to fruition. I mean, we had a, a huge five player trade this week with the Pirates to kind of sink our teeth into a little bit. Uh, uh, huge being sarcastic, but I mean, I think that'll be a interesting trade. But uh, it's always to, fun we have to Google four of the five names in the trade. Yeah, but those, <laughs> but those are the trades that down the road you look at and maybe go, hey, maybe getting Jordan Luplo was a uh, was actually pretty important for the season. You just can't kind of see that now. But anyways, back to your point. I think when they signed a lot of these players to the extensions and built in the team options and the escalators and. And all those things that you're starting to reach now with Carlos Carrasco, Corey Kluber, and some of these other guys, you know, getting deeper into the Jan Gomes and Roberto Perez contract. One of the reasons beyond just wanting to lock these guys up is to lock them up at rates that could be beneficial if you ever reach a point where trade talks factors into the equation. You know, like it's going to be tough if you're trying to move an Edwin Encarnacion. That was an overpay for the Indians. The market evaluates that type of hitter differently than they used to. But the Indians knew at the time, hey, if we want to get this guy that fits this need, we need to do it. And maybe you won't be able to trade him, but you live with that because it was a need at the time and it's what it cost. Um, and at the time, from the market standpoint, it looked like a discount. That looks a little different as we sit here today. But when you look at the other contracts – those were built and structured in a way where when you reach this point, when this roster is getting older, um, you know, it's one of the older rosters in the big leagues, even with the young superstars that they have, you know, you, you now have pieces that are attractive to teams that can better take on that type of salary, uh, contending teams that are looking for star players. And so it just creates uh, just sort of, it opens the, the lines of communication and allows for dialogue. It doesn't mean you're going to pull the trigger, but it lets you sit back and have more information thrown your way so you can evaluate uh, how do we sustain this run of success. Uh, and as you've talked about, again, at length with the state of this division, if you subtract a little bit to address some other needs and you subtract from a, a great area of strength, you're still probably going to win the division and maybe you make some mid-season moves like they've done in recent years uh, that are more impactful for the stretch run and, and playoffs and things like that. So I think it's all you can kind of see how the seeds were planted years ago when they built these contracts, and they're reaching that point now where even if you don't make a move, it makes complete sense to say, hey, what would you give me for Corey Kluber? Um, and it, again, it doesn't mean you're going to trade him, but it helps you sort of know what value is out there and – can it help move money around to address the other areas of need? Right. Because as we've said too, it's not about trading one of these guys for prospects that aren't going right. to be part of this team for years, or it's, it's not about moving the $17 million and then pocketing that it's how do we reapply that? You know, how we, how do we reinvest it back in the roster and maybe try to use that on two or three guys as opposed to one. Right. Ultimately you don't want to be in a position where you have to trade one of those guys and they aren't in a position where they have to. And, and, and you don't want to wind up you don't want to wind up in a situation like the Tigers where they handed out these massive contracts and then for a couple of years everyone's going that cliff's coming like you're contending you're a world series contender annually year after year after year and then you just fall off that cliff and you're not able to 
sustain the window or get back pieces because the contracts were not tradable contracts. You know, so I think that's what you're trying to avoid here, especially as a as a mid-market team is being in a situation where you just hang on to all of these guys through the length of their contract and then you just nosedive off a cliff. That's what they want to avoid. Well, I mean, a good front office is going to know how to flip a guy right before probably you should as opposed to the other way around where now you're in a situation where your market's either really severely limited or just non-existent right. because you've, you've held on to a guy too long. And most, most smart front offices are able to figure out what that, when that is. And we may be approaching that with Kluber. This is a guy that I don't think is going to wake up tomorrow and be bad. But are we ever going to see the Kluber that was just ridiculous, best in the world? I don't know. A lot of it comes down to health and, you know, his, his age is, is also creeping up, too. I think it's fair to believe he'll probably have to change bits about how he attacks hitters in the in the coming years. And that just happens with every pitcher as they approach 32 33 years old. I mean, hell, we're talking about it with Clayton Kershaw. Right. <laughs> Kershaw's, you know, been spectacular throughout his career, but there's concerns there. So, I mean, you're talking about pitching. There's always a lot of concern. The other part of maybe why you look at it now, and it's something I wrote about today at The Athletic, is, you know, you, you've got this guy that they really believe a lot in, in Shane Bieber. And right. I think it, it says a lot about their their faith in him that, they got to through the trade deadline and there was plenty of interest out there in Bieber and they didn't move him and they could have for probably a pretty significant piece and they didn't move him and they held on to him throughout that. They get to the off season. I mean, the first they get through the playoffs and they had no hesitation handing on the ball in game four had they got there. And then as they get through the off season and they start to consider moves, they're going to have to, to make here to extend the window. He's a guy that factors into their plans if they were to trade a Kluber, Carrasco, or Bauer more than he already is. You're not trading one of those guys if you don't think that Bieber can at least get somewhere close. You know, if his ceiling isn't somewhere close to what you're giving up. If you don't think that he's going to be a, you know, I don't know if he'll be a frontline starter, but if you don't think he's capable of being a mid-rotation guy, I don't think you're considering right now moving a Kluber, Carrasco, or a Bauer. And that factors into it too. I don't know. I don't know that we've spent a lot of time talking about that, but that is someone that really impressed me in his first year. And I, I think I certainly think the the ceiling. He's got plenty of room to grow, and I think he's got a lot of room to make some adjustments. But there were some things that really stood out in his rookie year that I'm like, wow, this. I, I can understand why they have so much faith and why they want to keep a guy like this around. Yeah, he looked like Josh Tomlin with velocity, which it, which there's a lot of potential there because Josh Tomlin made a career of just being a precision guy. Now, if you can add velocity to it, it takes on uh, you know a, a different look, and and that's really solid to plug in. And look, I mean, a lot of teams when they go into spring training, they go, we have two or three rotation guys locked in, and we have competition for that fourth spot. We have competition for that fifth spot. The Indians, if they don't trade anyone, can go in and say, these are our five, and they're five top-notch arms. And that's a that's a great foundation for a team that's coming back as a contending team. So I think you look at that and go, okay, well, maybe the depth – I think my, my initial concern with trading one of these guys would be the depth behind the five is pretty thin. I mean, may, we don't know what you're going to get from Danny Salazar or Cody Anderson coming back from injury. Uh, you, you know, Adam Pucko was, you know, he was, he was good at times and then he looked like he had a lot to work on at times. And so you don't really know 
you know, where he's going to fit into the picture. You know, he could be a solid fifth, solid fourth eventually, but it looks like Bieber's right ahead of him. You know, Ryan Merritt, as much as the fans love him, I mean, he hit the, the minor league free agent market, so you lose a layer of depth there. And, you know, Josh Tomlin's gone, so you lose a layer of depth there. So my initial concern was, was all right, that five is the backbone, and it's the strength of the roster. It's the reason they're a World Series contender, but it's thin behind them. But I've also warmed up to the idea of, Hey, last year, in the middle of the year, they went and made uh, a trade, got Donaldson, you know, got the bullpen guys. Before that, it was Andrew Miller. Uh, before that, it was, or, you know, within there, it was Jay Bruce and, and some other midseason moves. I think the Indians like to address the needs midseason for the stretch run in the playoffs. So if you're a little thin at the back end of the rotation at the start of the year, that's something you can maybe address at a discount in the middle of the year. Yeah, and I think the other part of this, too, is – Looking at free agency and pitching, it's not particularly strong behind Corbin and Nivaldi right. and maybe Jay Happ. So that's taking advantage of the market, too. You know, Correct. you shop these guys. You don't have to make a move, but you just kind of capitalize on, on what the market is. And I think that all of that is smart. They've done it in years past. I don't expect them to change. I think they'll continue to take that approach. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't think they're going to end up making a move because I don't see any team – stepping up and offering them the lofty price that they're going to want paid for one of these guys. And that's to the Indians benefit. Again, it's not like they're up against it. And if the worst case scenario is that you come back with five of, of the best, like a group of five that is among the best in, in baseball. Yes, there are holes to fill. And yes, there are problem areas and it's an imperfect roster, but if at least you're telling me that I have those five, I go, okay, well, at least I could build on that. We can deal right. with that. And beyond that, maybe we can go about fixing things in other creative ways. I agree. Well, there's one thing that probably a lot of fans won't agree with you on, Jordan. And that's your voting for most valuable player. You, you know, you are the, you remain the king of the segue. <laughs> It's a lot better when you don't point it out because then I don't sit here and gloat about it for five minutes and it defeats the purpose <laughs> of, of trying to make the smooth, quick transition. Uh, but it is, you know, something people are, are, are looking at this week as the awards are, are rolling out. And this, this year I was voting on Manager of the Year, the Ryan Lewis Award that they hand out <laughs> <laughs> from the Active Beacon Journal. And we, of course, we give a special shout out to Ryan, who I believe has voted on the award every year of its uh, existence. I, I'm pretty sure Ryan has had a vote in that almost every <laughs> single year. But I voted on that this year. Uh, so quickly, I'll run through. I had uh, Kevin Cash first. Uh, I like it. And I, uh, the reasoning behind putting him first, I mean, you could have put Melvin and Cash in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a hat and drew any of their names out and in any particular order, and it would have been fine. The only reason why I decided to go cash is because it, more than you know, just where they finished in the standings, which was a part of this, but because they, they were essentially the first team this year to, to pick up the opener and kind of run with it and make it their own and establish um, a little bit of a, a blueprint for other teams to follow, I, I felt like that was important. But more than just even thinking outside the box, it was how does he get his players to buy in and believe in that because you don't get that to happen right. without buying from your players. And to me, because they were kind of at the forefront of that, he had to be the one to go out there and sell it, sell it completely without any sort, sort of blueprint. Whereas with Melvin and you know other teams that tried it, 
they could point to the Rays and say, well, look, you know, they've done it this way. Maybe we kind of adapted to our style here, but they're doing it and it's not completely foreign. But with, with cash, he was the first guy that essentially had to sell all of his players on really going outside the box and it works pretty well for them. And, and that's why I ended up picking, or I ended up voting him first, Melvin second and core third. But again, you could have went in any order at this point. And, and with manager, as we'll get into, you know, there's a, there's a, a thought process on how you pick this sort of thing. And for us, you know, we're very analytical. We try to go about this as, as number based as possible and not rely just completely on anecdotes and things that you can't really back up. But I mean, for manager, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> there's no, there's no stat. There's no leaderboard there for a manager outside of his win loss record. Yeah, it's tough. I remember, uh, you know, when we were breaking down, uh, last couple of years when you when Terry Francona won, you know, a lot of th- times you would look at platoon advantage or, you know, uh, just different ways of structuring lineups or you know, it's hard. to. There's no right answer for how to, you know, evaluate the manager. A lot of times it's just the team that's surprised. And uh, pretty quickly, in many cases, you've seen a guy who wins manager of the year is not a manager uh, the next year or a couple of years down the road. So, it can be volatile in that way. It's an interesting one to evaluate. I like the cast pick because similarly to um, Shohei Otani for Rookie of the Year, I felt sometimes if you, you know, obviously Otani did something unique, but years from now when you look back, the Otani phenomenon itself to me was more memorable. Uh, it was more of a landmark moment, you know, and it kind of captured the, the baseball world. And I think that should get, factored in along with the fact that he put up the quality of numbers that he did and I think when you're looking at Kevin Cash and what he did with the Rays pitching staff and not to mention the Rays ended with a, a very good record um, but just years from now when you look back you know we'll we'll see where bullpenning goes um, if other teams will try it you know this a lot of it is based on circumstance just like when Everyone said Terry Francona reinvented bullpen usage well they had two starters and one starter who had a bloody finger, he had to reinvent bullpen usage or he wasn't going to have a chance. Uh, so I think when you're looking at bullpenning, though, this was innovative and it was uh, maybe a turning point for usage or the way teams evaluate how they should go about it. And so I think that should also be factored in beyond just numbers. But you're right, with the manager process, there's a lot of there's not a lot of concrete ways you can look at it. Maybe it's more abstract or looking more for uh, the impact to the game, not just the team. Yeah, I mean, it would be simple if it wasn't just who surprised and picked that guy uh, because sometimes teams win in spite of their manager. If you look at the Royals over <laughs> the years, you know, there were times where everyone goes, what in the hell is Joe doing? And they end up winning the <laughs> World Series. Right. So, you know, sometimes you just win and your team's good enough. It doesn't really matter. And, and the other thing is, you know, when we look at managers, we put so much emphasis on you know, how you stack a lineup or, you know, who's pitching in what situation, as you said, platoon advantage. And it's not to say all of these things aren't important because they all do give you an advantage that you wouldn't have if they weren't used correctly. But ultimately, we're still talking about fractions of right. games, of wins that take place. A lot of it just comes down to do your guys perform <laughs> when they're put in these positions? You know, look at, at Terry Francona. Everyone says, well, this this year was not one of his best managerial ones. And I, I would agree with that in some ways. 
But also, you look at the playoffs and say, well, he, he went with Corey Kluber for too long. Yeah, it's still Corey Kluber. <laughs> you could just stick with the guy that's a two-time signing award winner and is a finalist yep. this year. And while maybe you could have went a different, dire- different direction, you, he still ultimately chose to go with one of the best pitchers in baseball. Or when you, you pull Carrasco out of a game and you go with Andrew Miller. Well, if you're going to win anything, Andrew Miller has to be really good. And right. so you, you, I think a manager, the only thing you could do is just try to put your best players in a position to impact the game as much as possible. And if you're doing that, now all that other stuff that we're arguing about, it can be fun. But we're still talking about things that ultimately are decided by the players. Yeah, when I try and think how much blame should you put on the manager, you have to it's, – it's hard to do, but you have to remove the benefit of hindsight. You have to think, how did I feel in that moment that the decision was made? And when I looked at how they constructed the roster, you know, the Indians, for the uh, division series against the Astros, and then when you look at uh, how he went about managing those games – I didn't really question the roster this year like I did a year ago. I thought they overthought the roster in 2017, and we saw a lot of those things come back to haunt them. Uh, This year, I thought they weren't cute about it. They went with their strength, and they built the roster the way it should be built. And then when when you looked through the games, there was only one time where a guy was coming in out of the bullpen, and I thought – I don't know about this. And that was the, the Corey Kluber start when he left Corey Kluber on the mound. I kind of was like this, you know, that was a really trying inning the inning before, but again, you're right. It's Corey Kluber. If, if you're going to get anywhere, you're going to have uh, to trust him. Uh, but the other decisions along the way, you know, maybe other people felt differently, but like when you pulled Carrasco or Clevenger or, or any of those in the moment, I didn't question the move. You saw things blow up on it. But that, to me, was more the players didn't perform. It wasn't necessarily that the manager made the wrong move. So I think it's, it's important in any time, whether it's regular season games, playoff games, to try and remove the benefit of hindsight a little bit and think, did you think it was the wrong decision in the moment? Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people are honest about that. <laughs> right. The time. And, I, and I, I get it. It's, it gets frustrating as a fan because you – you you constantly want the right the right guys in the right situations and when it doesn't work out who do you blame the guy that put them in that position right and sometimes that that is warranted sure a manager could make a, a bad decision but even even if a manager i mean short of running his batting order in reverse order of what it should be <laughs> if we're talking about moving a guy between two and three or three and five i mean yeah why not do it if it's going to give you an advantage first but second right. of all if you don't do it, it's still not normally the difference between winning and losing games. You're still, you're talking about fractions of wins over or fractions of runs over, over the length of 162 games. <laughs> even, even the best decisions are still impacted by the guys that you put in that situation. And that's why it's difficult to evaluate managers based just on the moves that they make on the field. And, it, and that's why I believe you have to take some of that off the field stuff into account. And I, it's what I try to do. Um, and it's difficult when you're not part of a, a, a media group and you're just kind of relying on stories that you read throughout the year and just kind of the talk around the team to make these decisions on voting. It does get a little bit difficult, but I just try to evaluate as much of that as possible. And that's how I came up with, with what I came away with this year with manager. But of course, that's manager of the year. I probably 10 minutes after it was given out, 
most people forgot who got it. The MVP is something that people will talk about for a while. Oof. Cy Young is something yep. people will talk about for a while. And you've vote, voted on both of those things over the past few years. So you voted for the past three years, right? This is your third year voting because of the correct finally opening up the BBWA to MLB.com? Yes. So I had Cy Young my first year. In the last two years, I had MVP. And it was excruciating each time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so hold on. Before we get into the thought process, because that's I re- that's what I really wanted to talk about, the thought process behind it. I, I mean, right. we can talk about your votes because we'll, we're recording this on Thursday, but by the time this comes out on Friday, the MVP award will be given so we can talk about your voting. But we'll do that in a second. I was more just thinking about how you go about putting together your process on who you're picking. But the very first thing, when you get the email and you open it up and you see what you're voting on, what's your first emotion? excitement panic crap (laughs) i think no matter what it is i think uh you know you know you don't know what you're going to get initially um i actually this year at first i thought man i i think i want cy young you know because mvp looks pretty convoluted uh and then trevor bauer got hurt and you know blake snell went out of his mind and it became this intense debate over volume versus value and i was like yeah you know i changed my mind i don't want that one anymore (laughs) um so i ended up with mvp so i was actually a little relieved because the cy young debate was pretty intense and even when you look at the the end result um i think i less so with blake snell winning although there's arguments to be made about verlander i think i would have had verlander first i'm not positive on that because I didn't dive deep into that because that wasn't my vote Uh, but when you start looking at the three four five six range that's where it got tricky and that's where a lot of voters looked like they were all over the map you know you saw Trevor Bauer finish sixth and you could have made a case for him to be the winner Um, so I think that was an interesting debate so MVP when I get it uh, the last two years you know I've sat down and a lot of times what I'll do is I'll sort of make a spreadsheet with traditional stats, uh, newer analytics. I'll go with, you know, I'll have all the different variations of war in there. A lot of times I will average those out to get a number for each guy. You know, I put the defensive stuff in there. And what I've tried to do, do in, in past years that I've, that I've done this, even before I had an official vote when I would kind of think about it, is I would remove the names. So all I could see were the numbers because I know there are some voters that really take narrative into account, um, take team success into account. I think I don't do that as my initial step. You know, if I sort of rank the numbers that I have, then I will go in and fill in the names and then I'll look. And if I'm searching for some tiebreakers or I just don't feel right about the order that they wound up in, Maybe that's when I start to look at uh, how many wins did the team have? How big of a role did this player factor into that? Should I include a pitcher for the MVP award, which years ago I was adamant that I would never do that. And then last year in the Altuve judge ballot, I ended up having two or three pitchers on there because of the, how thin it got at the bottom of the ballot. Um, And I thought, the only way to strengthen the ballot was to include some of the, the top-notch arms that were in the Cy Young debate last year. So that then re- removes the 
uh, I can't put pitchers on there. Now I have to consider it because I did it once, you know, that set a precedent. So that sort of introduces another uh, wrinkle into how the, the thinking behind it. So this year was no different. I thought it ended, ended up being a debate over Betts and Trout at number one. And then from three to seven, um, I thought you could have gone in any direction for those numbers. And then the bottom of the ballot, the eight, nine, 10, I mean, I had a long list of names and I would say eight, nine, 10 was harder to do than one through five. So if you look at bets or trout, you're talking about like guy or both guys put up just unbelievable seasons, right? Bets doing it in the middle of a playoff race for a team that won a hell of a lot of games. And of course you didn't know it at the time, but eventually was going to go on and win the world series. Trout, of course, pretty much the same as we've seen with with Mike Trout for several years now, where he's by far, if you're just looking, if if he's able to stay on the field and it's not bogged down by injuries, best player in the game. But how much how much can you factor in that he is doing it not in a pennant race? How much can you just use that? I know you said you use it sort of as a, a tiebreaker, maybe in some situations, but I think there's there's something – I'm not going to say a lot, but I think there's at least a little bit to the fact that a player is doing – or a player is putting up numbers in the midst of some really important games. And I know you can look at, like, win probability added and, and, and really kind of dig deeper into it. But I, I think that – I don't think you should ever completely dismiss someone that is doing it against stiff, stiff competition in the middle of trying to win a division – compared to a guy that maybe in the final two months doesn't have a lot to play for and therefore isn't playing through these excruciating playoff packed atmosphere type games. Yeah. Uh, that, that ultimately to me kind of became the, the argument between bets and trout. I don't have all the numbers in front of me right now, but um, I looked at, like you said, win probability added some of the quote unquote clutch numbers and and then just also considered uh, the Red Sox season. And to me, Mookie Betts became just a, a bigger story, what he was doing this year. And defensively, I know there's flaws to um, defensive runs saved as a corner outfielder. You know, that's a whole – we could have a whole podcast about that element. Um, but ultimately, I, I went with Betts, and a lot of it is because of what you said. It's – you hate to penalize Trout for his teammates, but uh, I kind of factored in the strength of the division, the you know the fact that Betts was seeing the Yankees as much as he was and their pitching staff, and uh, it, it that was tough to me. It was a coin flip, but I went with Betts number one, and those things that you're talking about kind for me ended up swaying me uh, to go that way. Yeah, I think it should definitely be factored in as a tiebreaker. It should right. You should never rule anybody out because of that if, if Mike Trout had well in a way the best year of anybody right then I, in my mind you have to pick that guy but if we're talking about if we're splitting hairs between you know uh, a tenth or two tenths of, of a <laughs> they're win, so close <laughs> I mean you're talking about so much noise in the in in that that you, you gotta just now you have to start to factor in some of those things and I think it's important to do that um and I'm willing to accept that there are some things that maybe not every everything can be quantified. There are some things maybe we can't capture. And I, and I think that's a fair conversation with J.D. Martinez. I was going to uh, mention I, him next because 
Red Sox fans will be thrilled <laughs> that I put Mookie Betts first. Hooray! He voted for the Boston guy. I have J.D. Martinez seventh, and I might get killed for that. Um, but in the same vein, I don't have Chris Davis in my top ten. Not Baltimore's Chris Davis. He also yeah. is not in my top ten. Uh, but Oakland's Chris Davis. And, yeah, I can't, I can't the believe The dude that. was a monster. And, you know, I think as I look, as I revisit my ballot, that might be my regret that I didn't at least put him in the bottom three because to, to recognize the incredible offensive season he had. But I weight so much value to defense. Um, to me, the most valuable player is the whole package. And I know you can make the narrative argument of J.D. Martinez coming in and helping change that dynamic, that lineup, and helping Mookie Betts become what he is. And, and all those things that you hear about and read about and see quotes about, but you can't quantify – I like to try and quantify as much as I can when it comes to this. And so I just couldn't put JD Martinez much higher just because he was, he didn't play in the field, you know, and and you had guys like Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez and Bregman and, and Chapman, what he did in Oakland and the value that they all brought all over the place, both offensively and defensively. I, I just couldn't put, Martinez higher than than seventh for that, and I know I'm probably gonna my mentions will you know be uh, happy about Mookie, and will be killing me over JD Martinez, and I'm fine with that. But I think if you look at my ballot from top to bottom, you'll see how much I value defense as part of the equation. If you want to know about next level shade from people in your mentions, and this is true of Ryan Lewis too, who also did not vote for Cora for Manager of the Year, he put him third like I did. I had a fan from Boston add me to a Twitter list called people who didn't vote for Cora. (laughs) (laughs) And there's like eight of us, but he made that's that to me is I'm not even mad about that. Like that's, that's next level shade that you're, you're showing somebody. I think it was uh, Joel Sherman put out a tweet last night. um, You know, cause Snell won the Cy Young. But there were people, obviously, who, because the ballots go public, who were just nitpicking. And it was like, can we not can, – can we just celebrate, if you're a Rays fan, the fact that he won and not <laughs> nitpick over who gave him a second-place vote or third – you know, it's um, – especially in a Cy Young race that was so complicated this year. But I thought that was good. Like, sometimes I, I think fans are looking, hey, we get the right to vote. We, we have earned it based on our – place in the bbwaa and based on history and just how this works and so i understand that fans who who are just sort of witnesses to this want to have their say because they don't get a vote um and so if we vote wrong and it's deserving of ripping our our vote by all means that comes with the territory go for it you know but i think at the end of the day if you if your guy won um you know celebrate it don't (laughs) don't nitpick Unless, of course, your guy finished in second, and it would have right. been a difference and between winning case. and losing. <laughs> right. In which case, you become public enemy number one. And I right. I will say, I mean, I agree with you about Cy Young this year. It would have been really difficult to try to pick a winner. And I probably would have been the only guy that didn't put Verlander or Snell one or two on my ballot. <laughs> I was amazed that every single ballot had one of those two guys listed first or second. 
Yeah. Uh, and there was nobody else that snuck in and took a first place vote away. Just um, look at uh, Trevor Bauer's Twitter feed. He yeah. put up a little a little spreadsheet player A, player B comparison, which was very obviously him and <laughs> Snell yeah. um, highlighting the categories. And, and I, you know, it's a little odd to see a player make his own case uh, that publicly. But if a reporter would have put out the same tweet, like if that's something you could have tweeted or I could have tweeted, it's just kind of funny that it's coming from Bauer. But he's not necessarily wrong. I no. think it just showed – it showed how close they were, and yet he finished sixth, and one guy won the award. So I think it's a that Cy Young debate was was very difficult. Yeah, I feel like if you're if you're willing to vote for Bauer, then you should probably vote for Sale. Right. Sale, Sale was better. I would say Sale better than Bauer, and both are kind of in the same conversation volume wise. So if you're willing to go down that rabbit hole, then it just expands even further. And right. I'm looking at it going, boy, it would have been really difficult for me not to vote Chris Sale number one. So I don't I didn't envy anybody that had a vote in that this year. Um, but what I, what I do find interesting and we, we see this every year, it kind of becomes its own thing. Voting has has really, I guess, just changed uh, even compared to where it was at five years ago. And it's always kind of shifting and and essentially you look at what the latest uh, popular stat might be and you kind of see some voters go that way go back to 2014 when Kluber won the award you know it was when yep. when really FIP became a th- not that it, it it's been a thing before that but I'm talking just kind of a that that national baseball perspective it really kind of caught on and then people were looking at defenses you know were, were you playing behind a crappy defense did you have a great defense and, and we were expanding even further than I think we had ever <laughs> gone before even more so than you know when felix hernandez had won the award right and it didn't have the great record to go along with it um but what i i do find interesting is that as you kind of look at that i I, if you go too far going through the numbers and you start to look at things that should happen compared to what did happen i i do get a little bit nervous because it I i think it is important to recognize what did happen even if there was luck involved and there are things that you would do differently if you're evaluating a player, like if you're going to trade for a player or you're going to sign a player compared to giving him an award. Right. It's it's like when you look at the FIP versus ERA, or you look at, um, you know, now with StatCast data, we can look at somebody's expected WOBA compared to their actual WOBA. Right. Who, who was outperforming it? Who was lucky? Who was unlucky? And I, I don't want to get into a, a situation where you're rewarding things that should have happened but didn't happen and kind of ignoring what actually took place in the, on the field, regardless of whether it was lucky or, you know, a guy might have pitched in a good defensive environment. If he had a good ERA, he had a good ERA. I don't want to take too much away from him. And I, it's, it, I think it's a dangerous line to walk. And you can do it with hitters, too. Like I said, if you're looking at exit velocity, this guy always hit the ball harder than this guy. So he deserved it more, even though the defense caught the ball more against this particular player than this particular player. I, I do think it's important that you don't stray too far away from what actually did happen when you're just talking about awards. Again, it's different if you're evaluating a player, if you're looking for bounce back candidates or you, you think this guy might be might regress to the mean. Uh, you know, all those things are important when you're just looking at evaluation. But when you're talking about awards, we still, I think, are rewarding guys that actually did what they did on the field, regardless of how they got there. 
And I don't want to get too far into it where we're rewarding things that should have happened as opposed to things that did. I agree. I think the theoretical or the, um, like you said, the, those types of numbers can maybe serve as tiebreakers in a very close case, but I think they're better served for in-season evaluation. Like, is what we're seeing over this stretch real? Uh, what should we expect going forward from this player? I think it's better for evaluating when, you know, a team signs a guy to a, a certain contract, you know, should they have given him that contract? Was the production that he did produce indicative of what it should have been or what it could be going forward? Uh, you know, should we look at what happened theoretically in a season and, and expect less or more in the next year uh, and things like that? I think that's where it's really valuable. When you're talking about these awards, I think you and I are on the same page. And I know podcasts are always great when the two people agree on everything. Um, <laughs> But, but I agree. I, I think you have to look at what they did, reward what they did. And then if you're in a situation, like if you're looking at bets and trout and it's just killing you, you don't know which way to go and you just need a tiebreaker and you want to go down that road and look down that road and go with some of those expected weighted numbers, you know, maybe that's when you, you use that as a tiebreaker. Yeah. Just because these metrics are always changing and shifting. You can say the same thing about when we were just basically the award on ERA, you have to right. go deeper than that. Uh, but because these things shift every year and, you know, you find certain things that you could do better. I don't want to, I don't want to get into a position where you're giving guys awards for metrics that end up being flawed years from now, I guess right. is, is my biggest concern with, with going too far. I always like to way. imagine you and I as older reporters and the young kids <laughs> going like, man, these geezers are still looking at war, you know, like or, uh, <laughs> defensive run safe, you know, like good one, like, grandpa. Yeah. You know, get with the times, dude. You know, I think uh, it's fun to imagine the things that we yeah. kind of get on the, the older writers and their traditional numbers, you know, some days, some of these numbers are going to be pretty outdated based on uh, the science and where, where kind of the, the studies of, of these things go. I think it's interesting to be in this era uh, where we're we're getting stat cast and it's just like we have these this this cool toy and we're learning how to play with it uh, and I think it's going to be fun to see a decade from now 20 years <laughs> from now where this goes um, now to, one thing I do want to address because sure. I know Indians fans will be interested in this when they see my ballot um, is I put Francisco Lindor third and not Jose Ramirez say what uh uh record scratch um yeah i have ramirez fourth and that was a tough one but ultimately and i don't think i don't think it's necessarily wrong but the drop off of ramirez's production in the last two months was just too dramatic for me uh and and the the inability to correct it down the stretch and then just how steady francisco was and how much value he brought defensively at shortstop. I thought the consistency that, that Lindor showed from start to finish and kind of helping pick up the slack when Ramirez was struggling down the stretch, nearly catching Ramirez in many offensive categories and doing it out of the leadoff spot. Um, I just was like, you know, I loved the season Ramirez had. I thought, it was the better story 
this year. I thought we had more fun telling the story of Jose Ramirez's season. But in the end, when the dust settled and I, and I looked at everything, I just, that, that two-month slide that he had, I just thought Francisco ticked just above him um, in terms of overall uh, production for the season. So that was a tough call, but I just wanted to kind of explain that one because I think there, some eyes will kind of widen a little bit when they see that I didn't have Ramirez third. Now, do you have a preference on where they send their hay mail? <laughs> somewhere where that would be best served to, to reach. Well, here? I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing, I'm discussing it on the athletics podcast. So if you could just send anything to <laughs> TJ Zuppi and Zach Meisel, uh, that would be great. And then uh, behind Ramirez, just so I can run down my ballot for those who didn't see it online. I got Alex Bregman uh, fifth. I have Chapman sixth, followed by JD Martinez, uh, then I have Verlander, who I would have voted first for the Cy Young because I thought he had the perfect mix of the value and the volume. Um, I, I thought he should have won the Cy Young. And then behind them, w- behind him was very tough, but I have Andrelton Simmons and I have Whit Merrifield. And again, I think I could have squeezed Snell or Chris Davis into there. Uh, but uh, as I noted, when you look at my ballot, I think you see – how much I'm factoring in defense and how much I factor in base running and, and things like that. You're just biased. You, you just see the AL central so much. There you go. <laughs> that you think it has to be Whitmerfield. Well, so. I just didn't want Kate Upton mad at me too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Stay on her good side, man. Uh, this is normally where we do a random inning of the day, but you're random enough to be on this podcast. So I will accept that Jordan Bastion of MLB.com. <laughs> the answer Take was some time. The answer was Joe Inglet. Uh, there you go. Now that you're just saying that because you covered Russ him where, Kanzler. Russ where did Kanzler. you cover Joe England? What's that? Where did you cover Joe England? Toronto. Ding. Yeah, of course you did. At least we got that out of the way. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Podbean. If you have a, a, a podcasting app of some sort, you can find us. Just search Selby is Godcast. And of course, hit us up on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, or in your case, at ML Bastion. Any parting words here for our for all of our, our people listening and, and just enjoying hanging on every word, were you just so excited to once again step in in Zach's shoes and fill them admir- admirably? Well, it's easy to step into Zach's shoes when he's not wearing them on the beach hey. in the Bahamas. <laughs> I'm going to let you go on that one. All right. <laughs> I'm out. See ya. Have a good weekend, everybody. We're out of here. See ya.